Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces so there's going to be uh if you enjoy the podcast and you've never seen uh one of robin's kind of celebratory shows before i would really really recommend it this christmas or around this christmas uh there's going to be a new nine lessons and carols which is a kind of non-religious but non-exclusive celebration of life and the world and finding things out and participating intellectually. What I love is the way that you deliver that is very much how you see people doing a round of just a minute. There's <laughs> just enough thought without the being... A break. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is my Radio 4 skills. You are like a youthful Sheila Hancock. <laughs> Not that I'm saying Sheila Hancock's old. She, he said it, Sheila. Go and get him. Is presented by the Cosmic Shambles Network and the tickets are on sale now and it's December 16th, 19th, 20th and 22nd at the Conway Hall in London, which is a beautiful relic of a bygone intellectual past. That it is. It is one of our favourite venues in London to do shows at. So tickets, yes, they are on sale now at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons and that's nine spelt out N-I-N-E rather than the number nine lessons. Four nights of science and comedy and literature and music. Uh, lots of guests. Robin will be hosting each night and some of our guests include Josie, obviously, uh, Jim Elkaleely, Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Lucy Green, John Luke Roberts, Grace Petrie, Holly McNish, Selena Godden, lots, lots, lots more. So make sure you get your tickets now. And now on with this week's episode with our special guest, Lem Sisse. <laughs> Um, who's starting this one, Josie? You are. Am I? Right, yeah. okay. Right. Well, I suppose I did, didn't I? Because if that's recording, then I said the first thing, didn't I? Yes. Might add that out anyway. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Um, we are joined by Lem Cisse, who is just in, about to finish. At the time we're recording this, it will be over and done with by the time this goes out. But you are currently in uh, Jim Cartwright's Road at the Royal Court. I am, yeah. came out in 1986. Uh, 30 years since it did. And... Uh, yeah, what a joy. Past three months, I've been playing Scullery, who's the narrator. He's got a deep Lancashire accent. Scullery. All right. But how did that happen? I mean, you're, for most people, they, they, they know you as a writer, they know you as a poet. Yeah. Um, how much acting have you done in, in the past? I've not done a lot of acting in the past. But as a poet, you know, you do get up on st- stage and, and perform your poems. I've been told I'm a performer. But actually, that's like learning to drive yourself and then acting being the driving instructor saying, well, actually, you've, you've been getting everything. You know, you're doing it your own way, but that's not the way we do it here. So it's great, you know, at 50 to be able to learn a new skill, you know, and to put your trust also into a set of other people. It's quite a, it's quite a lonesome, not lonely existence being a performer, I think. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, the the idea of saying, okay, I'm giving over to you, the director, to push me into places that I don't, I've not been before, but that I think I can have a go at. Yeah, and also to say, 
I'm now part of this institution. Institution is probably the wrong word, but like this gang, this team. Absolutely. I'm on this team now. It's not just me driving. Ensemble, man. You know, (laughs) we all bow together at the end of the thing, you know. And and it's been a lesson in, for me, in... uh, I've realised that actually my life as a writer and as a poet has been quite self-centred. But that's how you develop a voice as well. You yes, it is. You have to do that thing where you listen to yourself and you know yourself that well. And it's so tricky, isn't it? It really is, because on the outskirts of you knowing yourself better and forming a relationship with an audience, on the outskirts of that is a sort of, of a, a silt-like build-up of ego. And this is, this is not related to your integrity or your sense of self or your sense of sharing yeah. it's still there yes it's still there you, you it's almost like you can't get away from it you know and every now and again it it'll pop up in your life and you're like oh i have to check that when you take on a project such as this um you, you do become aware of of how important it is to share your vulnerability that you may not be that good Wow. Yeah, That's yeah. such a cool thing to do at 50 as well. That's yeah. brave, I think. Like, yeah, well, you know, I, I can actually say, yes, I think it is. People often with my story uh, in life will say, oh, you're brave to have done whatever you've done. And I don't think I have. I don't think I've had a choice. Yeah, I understand. With, with this, I did have a choice, yeah. you know. It's great to let me test yourself and do something that, you know, you might not be good at, but you have an inkling that you you possibly you possibly could be good at it. Yeah. Oh, so that's a dream. That's like the best kind of creative endeavor, I think. Like, yeah. But I know what you mean about like not having had a choice. I think people sometimes think that writers and performers they'll go like, "Oh, I could never do what you do," and you go, "No, you don't understand. If I didn't do this, I would feel sick and depressed, and I wouldn't feel like I was living a life that I could live." Do you no know plan I mean? B. Yeah, no 100%. plan B. You know, David Knopfler the. The, the brother of Mark Knopfler, who did the first album with Dire Straits. Uh, it's one of the great things about doing gigs is you get to meet interesting people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were in, in the Shetlands, and he said, you know, so what, what do you do? Uh, he's not Northern, but... but uh, and, and I said, oh, I'm a poet. He said, oh, he's, and we've become good friends, actually, really good friends. He used to be a social worker. <laughs> and uh, he, said, he said, you know, I said, oh, I write poetry. And whenever you say you write poetry, you... you you know, you, you people will often think, oh, well, you're not in work. Um, when did you, though, as, as a poet, I remember John Hegley talking about, we might have talked about this before, there was a lovely thing where, you know, he'd been working on the comedy circuit for a long time, but then one day he did a gig at the Royal Festival Hall and he was on with people who were officially poets, people yeah. who were, you know, Faber and Faber yeah. published poets. And he said, you know, he kind of finished the gig... And then he hung around for a little bit to have a drink and he thought, I just want to go off on my own. And he went off to, uh, I think it was the Dome at Tufnell Park and sat there on his own drinking. And he just said he sat there and thought, I was a poet tonight. I really was a poet. I wasn't just someone who was on the comedy circuit doing funny yeah. stuff. Was it, was it, is there any... Because I think we all have certain points where you go, oh, this now becomes potential. This has a reality okay. as being a potential. And then there are moments where you go, this is my existence. Mm. This is. Did you have that moment? I knew Robin at, at school that I wanted to be a poet, and I knew, and I didn't know any other poets, and I'd only read a certain amount of poetry, 
Uh, but I knew, I knew, I knew from being twelve, thirteen years of age that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea that there was a poetry career or that there was performance poetry on stage, etc. I just knew that when I wrote poetry, I felt uh, like I existed, um, and uh, I was very sure about that. And uh, my English teacher, Mr. Unsworth, straight out of central casting for Kes, bald-headed <laughs> rugby player, <laughs> beer drinking. A wonderful human being um, sort of read my poetry uh, after class and gave me critique uh, the next day and told me about poets called, uh, later on, told me about poets called uh, Linton Quasey Johnson and 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 what have you. And uh, so I knew early on, uh, I, you know, my first book, first published book uh, came out at 21 and there was a first double page in The Guardian at 21 years of wow. age. I mean... Yeah, that's it's nuts, right? Pretty stunning. Yeah, we can look back now and go, bloody hell, what was that? What was going on there? Um, and and I have been a and was a literature developer. I was a gutter cleaner and a literature development worker for, for until I was twenty three, and then and then sort of gave that up and just performed my way through my adult life. Really, uh, now now I think is a is a is a great time for poetry. But also, there's so much kind of crossover with poetry and music, and people really cherishing that. And oh yeah, yeah. And poetry Kate and Tempest. And... Kate yeah. Tempest is like this. Um, she's like a, uh, a, a like a gigantic firework, who's just it's just beautiful to watch. Who's just gone up into the night sky and spread light everywhere, and and because of that light, all these new shoots are like oh it's it's, it's daytime. Wow. Are coming up, and 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 that that's um, there's only one every ten years of Cape Tempest. That's become, I think, that's a thrill and the sort of something that's blown my mind is like being involved in comedy now for like twenty years. Yeah. Like seeing that, seeing when you see someone, you go, "Wow, that only happens once every ten years, once yeah. every twenty years." Yeah. You know, seeing when a generation shifts, yes. or seeing when. Yeah, like you say, when one talent comes and then it inspires all kinds of other things, but how rare that can be yeah. and, and how suddenly you go, oh, well, this three years has been a bit fallow or whatever, yeah. but then pow, you know. Yeah. I, I, you know, the actor in the dressing room uh, at the Royal Court, the young guys, uh, are reading Kate Tempest. Oh. You know, her book is out there and they're talking about it in the dressing room. I mean, that's the kind of thing that happened to Liverpool Poets when they released Mersey Beat yeah. uh, in 67. Mersey Sound. Uh, Mersey Sound. Yeah. I always get those two mixed up. I've delivered... I think that's quite you know, a normal I've, thing. I've, 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 no, yeah. no, but, like, no, yeah. but I've, I've given, like, at the Poetry Society, I wrote a 45-minute speech on why the that book is so important and so important to me. And, 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 I, and, and even then, I get mixed up. I've, I've got a real... But it's their fault for making it too similar. Yeah, it's yeah. Too similar. But, it, but it fits because yeah. music at the time was doing really well from Liverpool and therefore the poets rise. And when that that, that happens, um, that happens, uh, it happened in Manchester with John Cooper Clark and the punk movement, you know. So it happens that the two things kind of, and it was Attila the stockbroker from oh, Brighton yeah. as well, you know. He, he came up with the punk movement and Benjamin Zephaniah with reggae and dub and Linton Quasey Johnson. So this this uh, this correlation between uh, anarchic or new music and new poetry is, is linked. Billy Childish is another example who I've, I know we've spoken about. 
you've spoken about on the past on this podcast. But I love the way, by the way, in this podcast, how poetry consistently sort of intersects with the novels that people uh, are, are talking about. It's kind of makes me go, yeah, damn right. When Alan Moore was speaking about, I mean, he was speaking beautifully about how poetry, uh, the, the how there's something otherworldly about it. He articulated it better than I, but that if you remember a poem, it can tell you things, you know, yeah. about which ways to go, uh, to travel across the country, for example. If you a rhyming poetry sits mm. in the mind in a way that nothing else does. And that's, that's what it did for people for hundreds of years Absolutely. as well. It gave you so many things that were and also that was um oh, who was the author that we were speaking to in Australia who was talking Kate Grenville? No, or? he was talking oh, we love about Kate the oral traditions of indigenous people. Alan Moore was talking about that. He it was Alan Moore was talking about the Aboriginals people remembering things through rhyme. Oh right. Sure. This was, yeah, it must uh, have been sorry. That was oh, the reason I'm not remembering that is because that Kim was years Scott. ago. It was Kim Scott. Oh, yeah. excuse me. So then sorry. we're talking about it again. But then that's my own fault for like literally having the same sort of <laughs> conversation. This podcast <laughs> eating itself, isn't it? We're talking about <laughs> that's why we had to bring in the Vonnegut ban. Vonnegut now. <laughs> so JG Ballard he's out now. No more of that thing. Because there is a, that, that rhythm. Because I, I found that I've been trying to work out. Because I've never really written stand-up. It kind of becomes lots of notes. And I think it's similar for you, isn't it? You don't really... Do you write I stand- only write retrospectively. So what I do is I take ideas on stage and then I record it and then I might transcribe it afterwards. But I find it very hard. And even when I want to sort of sit and tighten up the language, it's very hard to then take that back on, use it exactly the same every... It, it feels too mannered or too, like, not... Yeah, I can't basically. Yeah, because I've never. I just. I and I suddenly thought I'm going to try and write some stand-up and write it as if it was poetry to see how sparse I can make it because I'm oh. overly verbose and I keep just you know waffling on and, as this is illustrating. And uh, and I, I did some poetry gigs with Phil Jupiter this year at Edinburgh. It was just like that interesting bit of going. I'm learning and it's all rubbish. I mean, I always say to people at the moment is currently sentences in a shape. It's not. I wouldn't say that I've you know achieved any level. But I found because there was a book called The Monkey's Mask. I don't know if you've ever come across it. Dorothy Porter, uh, Australian author and she wrote this novel it's a a detective thriller um, but written entirely in verse so it's one of the most exciting thrillers you can read because there's no extraneous words there's no room for it's like if a description description has to fit in that line there and I've you know it was if I really recommend it to people they turn it into a film but of course the point is the film is just the story and what made it brilliant was not necessarily the story the story's fine but it's the form. Yeah, a lesbian detective thriller written in verse. That sounds great. Vroom, 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 vroom. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think poet. I mean, there was one. Excuse me. There was one point where I uh, before the Kate Tempest, because I've been around a while now, and it's great to watch when you've been around. But that I thought I was thinking, you know, comics are becoming the poets. They're becoming the anger that I want to see in pop culture. It's coming from the comics. It's not coming from the poets. Uh, and and that bugged me. <laughs> um, um, but it also made me look at the, the detail of what comics are doing with text and words and stuff. And I've just become more and more in awe of what comics do. Kate Tempest has... Has 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 raised poets' game yeah. in in having empathy, compassion, and anger, and like know. also that vulnerability that's Absolutely. so real. Yeah. And like I think when when I see poets that I love, that's what comes across for me is like it, there's no 
posture. Although sometimes when yeah. somebody does a really great posturing, it's it's good. But like, it's not like I'm doing what I've been told performance poetry is. It's here I am. There's no it like it's like there's no plan B. There's nothing else I could be doing but this. That's Absolutely. like my totally favorite kind agree. of thing. Yeah, I, I, and and. I wonder whether comics get the ability to do that as much as they would like to. I wonder whether new comics feel that vulnerability is part of their palette, mm. you know, and I, I think a lot of them possibly don't. Uh, and I think it goes through phases as well. Like, I think at the moment, stand-up over the last while has got, got quite big but in a slick way, and then that crumbled a little bit, but I think it's happening again that they really would love some some people would love comedy to fit very much in with like I don't know what I'm trying to say but like very simple archetypes or something do you know what I mean they don't want it to be as complicated as it is well it's like all kind of art forms though isn't it which is there is a mainstream you know most of the most interesting films are not the ones that are going to be playing on the most screens and in the same way I mean we were just talking before before you arrived about the Edinburgh Comedy Award and the fact that that should go to people who are stretching the possibilities and this year in particular I mean I I didn't see John Robbins show but I saw Hannah Gadsby's show Nanette and it was one of the most remarkable hours I, I mean I've I think we might have said when we were recording the Edinburgh shows, at the end of the show, I didn't know if I wanted to burst into tears or be sick or I didn't know. And people later on in the weeks, because I, I wrote a little piece about it, and people would come up to me in pubs and say, you saw Hannah Gadsby's show, didn't you? I, I, I've seen it. And I, I'm still, and they were still trying to assimilate what they'd seen. And they know that they, that, you know that bit when you've had an experience, but you don't quite know what the experience is. Mm. And I think that and May Martin's show was great this year as well. Again, and that had a lot about it was a very funny show, but within it, it was an incredibly personal show about some, you know, sometimes reasonably terrible things that she'd done. She's fantastic. If you haven't seen her, go and see her. She's absolutely brilliant. And again, she's such a good voice. Like she's got her own voice. She's there. She's fully formed. Mm. Like you, yeah. How long does somebody have like? Once you've got your own voice, I found my own voice quite early on, I think, or I'm still discovering it now, but one of the great things about comedy is that you throw away what you did last year. So you, you know, think poets. it's great, but it's not, because well, no, it you is don't great. get to look at your work. Well, the alternative is, is you know, I, I can read a poem now on stage yeah. and move people to tears, possibly, or laughter, that I wrote 35 years ago. So you're having to play the hits but, all but, the time. But, but actually, I love reading it because of my own story. That poem will be as relevant to me now as it was yeah. then. So I won't have any, I don't have any sort of problem with that. Oh, that's a really interesting thing. Of just, I don't have a problem with doing that at all. The audience may have. <laughs> and the nature of what people think a person's career you know, they they may have a problem with that, but I actually, for me, that poem is just as relevant now as it was 35 years but ago. But it is complicated, quite, isn't it? It is very complicated because artistically, it's good to move on. Artistically, it's good to throw yourself into something, into a new poem, into new areas, into a new, quote, set. And you to know? be involved. Like, what I do love about comedy, say you're touring a show, is the best thing of it is you know that's kind of you for the year you're living it it's vital and it's real to you intellectually creatively all of that stuff and so when it's over if you don't go back to it that does feel good and correct because I do sort of think that things are in and of their time but at the same time like if you're talking about bigger broader things you're right it's like I, I think it's important and wonderful to like like 
honor your work and cherish it and use it and like bring it back and stuff and and also like the idea that like so same when you're 75 if you're then reading a poem you wrote when you're 21 it's like um glenn gould playing the bloody oh the variations yeah what's a goldberg Goldberg. variations you know he plays it when he's a young man he plays it when he's an old man and it's completely different but exactly the same you know and that's amazing and so for me like stand-up frustrates me because I sort of thought, oh yeah, I've written all those shows that I really loved and that I was really proud of. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> gone I forever. Can't even remember I found yeah. notes from a show that I did three years ago and I must have done it 50 times. And I looked and I went, don't even know what those words mean now because <laughs> they were just like three words yeah. that would then become a... But there's something about the structure of poetry or in music because I think you're right about stand-up does date. Even when you watch great stand-ups and you go back to their... You it's know, the about great, the, here we all are But now. with the structure of poetry, you know, when I saw Linton Quasi Johnson, was it about... Was it a year ago, I think, the last time I saw him? Um, some of the stuff was some of the older stuff. Like you were saying, he was doing some of the things that people knew and some of it was, was more recent. And But none of it, you wouldn't be able to go... Apart from sometimes the fact that it was wedded to particular cultural events, but still the viewpoint of that cultural event was far broader and still relevant. But... There was no point that if you actually sat there, you'd really be able to say that was clearly that man who wrote it and now it's this man who is 60, whatever years old. Whereas with stand-up, I think sometimes you watch a stand-up and you go, that's a routine they wrote when they're in their 20s because now it's a little bit embarrassing Mm -hmm. that a middle-aged man is talking about these things and it doesn't feel right. Poetry doesn't seem to, or certainly the poetry I've seen, have that. I, I totally agree. I can listen to John Agard's poetry that he wrote 30 years ago and love it, and Linton Kwesi Johnson's and Benjamin Zephaniah's and love it as much today as I did when I heard it 30 years ago. It's true, and yeah. But I think it's almost like different societal functions because, like you were saying, like poetry and I think music, it's, it's a kind of magic. It's almost it's like, it's like an incantation. It's like guiding... Oh, what I'm trying to say. Sorry, Nick I don't Cave, want to pretentious, but it's like... Well, Nottingham like, Ice like, Arena, can't wait. More... God is in the house, man. This is this is exactly what you're... But it's... Th- that's, like, From her to eternity. Like... Still does that. That's yeah. a that's a 35 years old, that song. And it doesn't feel like, you know, the young man with the life he had then, and I think he's still doing it on the current tour. Yeah. But as I said, I'll find out when I go to Nottingham Ice Arena, which is the only place I get tickets. But so a night out in Nottingham to see Nick Cave, and I don't think he's going to do it on ice, which would be great if they actually decided, because I think that arena has been used for ice capades, and the idea of, you know, this is... Stagger Lee, but actually <laughs> Stagger Lee with Warren Ellis, etc., on skates. This is so much more earnest than what you've just said, and it's very pretentious, but I'm still going to say it. If you were thinking about it in religious terms... Stand-up is like a sermon. It's like what the priest gives every week to say, this is where we are, this is what's going on. And music and poetry is like prayer, which is like communing and the spiritualism of it. That's what it is. Thanks, guys. I've cracked it while you were mucking around. But I think that's like the difference of it. Is like so you stand-up are is more Psalm 23 and we are... Well, of course, it's been a funny old week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. You've derided us. When you were... So once you're, right, you're a published poet, you're 21 years old. Wow. Who were the other... When you yeah. were going out there and the other people who were being published then, those, those... What was... I mean, do you find it difficult reading other people's poetry? Do you find yourself trying to get other read something or were you able to immerse yourself in the other people who were creating and learn from them 
I think I did to a degree, but I think my life story sort of took over my writing in a very, very particular way. Uh, and my reading. Uh, but who was reading at the time? George Spender was around. Um, uh, obviously, Linton Quasi Johnson. It was the Caribbean poets who, who helped me and who I looked to and who um, who uh, gave me criticism and, uh, uh, and encouragement. Um, so Grace Nichols, Valerie Bloom from St. Lucia, Grace Nichols from Guyana, uh, John Agard, Guyana, um, Linton Quasi Johnson, Jamaica, Okuonuora, who performed at Bob Marley's One Love concert, the famous concert where Bob Marley put his hands out, got the two politicians from both sides who'd been warring and killing each other on the streets of Trenchtown, Jamaica, and he got them to hold hands. Th- that, 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 that concert uh, was started by a poet. Uh, Okwonuora, who Linton Kwesi Johnson wrote about in The Gleaner in Jamaica before he became a poet, which is where Linton or or Linton quoting Oku uh, first used the term dub poetry, which became uh, first a Jamaican kind of uh, phenomenon and then a a kind of world phenomenon. And dub poetry happened at the same time as, um, uh, as, as... not the concrete poets, but uh, and not the beat poets, but the poetry that exploded in in the sixties in uh, America and in in England. So dub poetry was like the and rap started then as well in the sixties and sixty seven, sixty eight. Um, uh, Langston Hughes died in nineteen sixty seven, and Langston Hughes is I would say is is the more obvious poet who I would be inspired by in uh, in Black American culture. Um, and then later on, Gil Scott Heron was a really, really big. Before everybody speaks about, spoke about <laughs> Gil Scott Heron, uh, he was a real uh, influence on me as well. His poetry and music, and um, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I live in a world where I feel like I should always be more read. I feel like the guy at the dinner party, you know, when people say, have you read uh, blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, <laughs> and the moment somebody does that at a dinner party, it just, because I didn't go to university, so it, all my head goes into, all the books in my head just turn to dust and go, fuck oh, no. <laughs> But I do that so, the whole time. I mean, like, because we, like, just generally read all the time, but if someone says, what have you read this year? I kind of go, uh, oh, nothing. that Gene Reese thing, <laughs> Good Morning Midnight, I read that, and Posey Simmons' Gemma Bovary, and that's only because that. they're the last things that I've read. And everything else has been erased because it's constantly going, oh, I'm meeting this person, so I want to know more about that, or I'm making a show about this. Yeah. <laughs> but and also, I... there was a girl at my school now, when I was about, like doing A-levels, and she brought in to school this book, and the book was called How to Seem Ridiculously Well Read. Oh, yeah. And I remember at the time being like, absolutely disgusted I was like what you're cheating and the same at uni there were people who didn't read the books they just read a paragraph describing the books and they lied and I think a lot of people that like to kind of intimidate I don't I feel like they skim and I don't want to skim I'd rather read less but really read it you know and I don't so I think a lot of any sort of posturing like that I think I'd be more inclined to be like I haven't read anything I don't want to talk to you you're not good enough you're mean I'm a published poet (laughs) (laughs) so I mean I think a lot of people out of kindness not out of you know I can see it at the dinner tables you know uh, uh, people discussing books I think it's just it's a great bond as well that happens it's It's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing 
but yeah, no, I just melted. This into... is people who are probably intimidated by you as a published poet trying that, to I think, impress oh, you. Gosh, you know what? That's what true. They've read. That is true. That is, you know, that's true. But then you're in a nice position right. where you can be like, that sounds great. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> I need to work on my game. I wonder, which is one people want to know, and others people go, oh, he thinks he's a poet. Well, oh, gosh. when I explain how I've read the whole of Moby Dick, and I'd like to say I was speaking character, I have not read <laughs> any of Moby Dick. Me I've read neither. Call Me Ishmael, and I only had read that because we had to read out that line earlier to set up a quiz. Right? And I've got James Joyce's Ulysses next to my bed, and it's filled with good intention. Uh, you know, this is we what we're talking about. We're going to have our Ulysses book club. We're going to have our Ulysses book club. We're going to do it. We're determined we should do to do that next Jambles. month. What? We're going to read the whole of Ulysses next month? Okay. No! <laughs> I tell you what, this is a digression. I finished reading the Elena Ferranti Neapolitan novels. Have you read them? No, I've just, I've got my uh, my best friend, is it? I'm sort of like halfway through. Oh my God. My, uh, my brilliant friend. My brilliant friend. I oh, I don't want to spoil something. Yeah, please. How f- how far through? Uh, it, don't, please don't, like, f- like, because once somebody said this to me with Ulysses, and then when I told them, they were like, oh, that's only that far. But, like, tell me how far through you are. Um, because wait, we are we talk talking about, about the, 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 it's the novel where the woman is being decimated by her husband who's left her, or she's left him. She's living in a, a is it my brilliant friend? She's living with her two children, and the man. There's a man who lives next door who is a guitarist. I think she sleeps with him. Oh, that might be a different book. It might not be my But it sounds friend. great. It's, no, it's one of them. It's one of them. Oh, hang on, so maybe them. that's the third one. Her man has... Her husband has been is fucking th- around with another woman. And he kept... Yeah, that's the fourth one. Oh, is that the fourth one? Th- oh, well, whichever well, one it is. Spoiler alert. Go but, on. Um, it's, oh, my God. If we could talk about the fourth one, I... I, I uh, there's what I, I've never read so so each one is about like 400 500 pages yeah. so I'd never invested that much in the story of two characters really or possibly have like with a Victorian novel at uni or something but like not really yeah. 2,000 pages oh my god by the fourth one any it felt like so broad in what it was able to do to you because it was like such a long meditation on like life and politics and love and womanhood and all of that but then also whenever any event happens so for example when it was um disclosed about um Nino Sarator who may I say even from book one I thought was an absolute asshole mm-hmm. um but when it's disclosed I was like it was like the best kind of soap opera sporting event it was like like <laughs> like I I can't I mean this has spoilers in so we should really put stuff but like I can't get over how deep and how rich an experience it was to read all four of them. And I really recommend it. Do you remember the first book that you read and really when you, you, that proper engrossed the, uh, the, the terror of any time where people said you had to stop reading. We had that. Was it, was there ever any moment early on where you just thought this, because I'm trying to think, I think Picnic at Hanging Rock was one. Yeah. Because it's quite late on for me. It's probably like, you know, mid teens and then, uh, and then The Beast in Man by Emil Zola is a book that is so 
uh, exciting and terrifying and it hideous is. that you just uh, I, I remember not being able to find it in my bag and I only had 20 pages left and I was like Where, where's it gone where's it gone where's it gone it's somewhere here it must be under this vest <laughs> I think it could have been I've thought about this beforehand uh, The Cross it's a very weird book this is a weird book the Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkinson. Oh, the one based on Nicky Cruz? Yeah, that's... What's yeah, that? Yeah, the, 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 that the, the, was... the Christian... It's about it's about a guy who uh, was... It's about gangs in New York, and then uh, a pastor gets involved with them and converts one of them, the worst one, and what have you. I mean, I'm just trying to... It's we all I remember it from... is the the because we're of similar age, yeah. And uh, I think that was uh, probably what was going on then was it was being distributed via churches and stuff like that. So right. it was just finding its way into schools. Because yeah. I remember the version that in our school was one which had I think the film starred Pat Boone, the uh, <laughs> yeah. popular yeah 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 like a crooner. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, God, good recall. And, and man. That, that was that was the, the film time one. But the 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 book that it was there was a book by a guy called Nicky Cruz who apparently was the, the character in the book Across the Switchblade yeah. the and guy kids who got loved converted. it had this yeah. really violent scene in it where someone got stabbed in the armpits Ooh. and it just made you know and that's apparent and I just remembered that was you know these certain things really visceral bits in whether it's a horror novel or whatever it is Judy the, Bloom Forever yeah Judy no, the one page with a bit of blue in it that, yeah we're not going to go back there again we had, to, <laughs> we had to bleep most of that out last time Josie but I think there's a certain point when kids it's, it's a little bit before puberty mm-hmm. but there's an excitement about and death, horror, terror, everything is beginning to accumulate in your brain. Mm-hmm. And so someone will go, have you read this? You know, in the same way like with James Herbert novels, right? And the PE teacher, he gets his, his genitals cut off. Probably didn't say genitals then. Uh, he gets Willy cut off with like, uh, there's some shears and stuff. <laughs> so all of those things. And I think a lot of people read Run Baby Run because they felt it was going to be more like James Herbert's The Fog or The Rats. And then found a lot of it was actually uh, proselytising for the Lord. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah. Well, I, the next thing that I got into, like film-wise, that related directly to the Cross and the Switchblade was Warriors. Is it Warriors? The Warriors, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, there's no religion in the Warriors at all. But that it's was New the bit York of gangs. yeah, exactly. That was the bit of of Cross and the Switchblade that really attracted me. Was just this description of this other world out there. You know, I didn't think of the religion at all. It, this other world that was outside of my sort of semi-detached house in Ashton in Makerfield, on the edge of Wigan, on the edge of the East Lanks Road, on the edge of Manchester. You know, it's like, wow, there's this other world out there. Yeah, what know? it suggests to you, like a dimension, yes, a dimension of how you could live. Or the, like, I remember that with going to nightclubs when I was 14 and thinking there's this whole secret nefarious world that's beyond this and it wasn't even that I wanted to get in it's not like you were thinking I've got to join a street gang is that you're going like there are people who live in ways that are like wild and creative and free and different and stuff and it's anything that kind of gives you that little imaginative inroad where you're like ah it's that, yeah, the little, the, the different sampling of counterculture that's like, I was thinking the first time that I went probably anywhere near Soho as a kid, and I went to Dark They Were and Golden Eyed, which was a, a comic shop. 
um, which has existed since uh, probably the, the it doesn't exist anymore, but it exists the sixties. In fact, the the guy who owned it does appear in uh, one of the uh, Century uh, episodes of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Kevin O'Neill and, and Alan Moore put me in that. Um, but that was you know you go in and, and it didn't look like the shops that were in Chorley Wood. <laughs> you know the shops in Chorley Wood looked out the shops they sold curtains and buttons and there School was and, 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 yeah and jars of sweets and there these weird comics you know with vampirella on the front or whatever it might be uh, and i think that's a to, to like rekindle like, that this isn't like chorley wood and you being like this isn't like wigan yeah this is uh and you it's not like bromley anymore is it um, no, not, not like we're out of Orpington. That's, but that's what, yeah, L- London was exactly that. It was like, it's something's what going first, on here. Well, that's new, what was the, do you remember that, that point where you, again, you you through books quite often, I think, is the first time that you learn about a different way of thinking, a different possibilities, you know, the, whether it's in fictional characters. Autobiography of Malcolm X. Right. Wow. That's where I was like, oh, I'm not going crazy. I'm not going crazy. This stuff is like I have a I, I have a relative experience to Malcolm X. Huh. I'm not going nuts, and that's uh, that 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 was like a book that said just keep going the direction that you're going in, because um, I think you we all think we're making it up until we find other people who are like oh no I've been there, done that this is my experience etc. You know and you're like wow. Uh, so we've we've run out of time, and I would like to, there's so much to we because we it's the first one back for a while, so we've waffled a lot. Uh, Josie and I, and we we should have talked a lot more about your work, and we will, I hope you will. We'll I still do love this hearing again. you talk. Um, you've got a, a one of your plays that's come out over on books, something dark. Yeah, come out uh, the past three days actually. Yeah, oh, begins perfect. touring as soon as uh, the play at the Royal Court finishes, and it's going to be a choice text on the A level syllabus. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Uh, Thank you. And there's a where's the best place for people finding out about everything? Oh, lemsisay.com. There's only yeah, one person with my name in the world. So. <laughs> is that true? It is true. Yeah. Oh. That's fantastic. Whereas Anna Ung is the most popular name in the world. Do you know about this? No. Um, th- they might be giants. Once wrote a love song. Now we have a special list of thank yous for the Lemsisay. 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 For the Lemsisay episode. Natalie Olson, Victoria Hopton, David Mitchell, which one we'll never find out. David Fraser, Charlotte Riddler, Dougie. Thanks, Dougie. Stephen Trudgeon. And the Box of Books winner is Chris Harris. Thank you, Josie. Well done, Chris. If you email us to, uh, uh, I forgot the email address. What's the email? Contact at cosmicshambles.com. Contact at cosmicshambles.com. Drop us an email there and we will get your prize out to you. Um, Now, on Patreon, if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you'll be able to access extended episodes. You'll be able to put yourself in the running for a box of books. A prize, which is a box of books, is a tongue twister. You can put yourself in the running for that. And the odds are actually very good. Yeah. Because we give one away all the time. Um, there's also bonus episodes, but at the same time, please don't feel obliged to support us on Patreon. You know, there's lots of free content. Also, if you do support us on Patreon, don't worry that it's going to rack up to lots of money because there's going to be free content for you as well. And yeah, it works out very reasonably priced. And it's going to be a maximum of, of three episodes that you would pay for per month. Generally, now we're going to be fortnightly, but... 
we're going to have still uh, shows popping up in between as well, which will all be free whether you're a patron supporter or not. It's much cheaper than BT Sport. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm.